So the topic of the uh, retreat, or the title of the retreat, is called Seeing with Dharma Eyes. And I want to explain that a little bit because it's really the essence of the work that we're doing here. And as we are brought into this world in a particular family, in a society, within a culture, within a specific, specific time, uh, an era, if you will, in a geographical location, the conditioning that our heart and mind undergo is very uh, precise, comprehensive, and uh, unique to each one of us. And we have to be conditioned into a culture and into a family and into a society in order to, to live within it, to understand the values and the mores and the just the, the, the ways of being. And more or less, we succeed, uh, successfully or unsuccessfully, but good enough to uh, make our way in the world as we do. But inevitably, we all, uh, in every culture, everyone, come across uh, pain, suffering, conflict, and all of the uh, very difficult uh, emotional states of frustration, disappointment, jealousy, envy, fear, anxiety, depression. These are not new to 20th century or 21st century Western lifestyle. These are common throughout humankind. And the way we understand, or the way we are conditioned to understand these experiences are very limited. They're limited to what our parents understood, what our culture understands at the time. And for most of us, there's, uh, there's really no, there's no avenue, there's no path to liberating the mind from these conditions. The best we can hope for is to uh, muddle our way through, or kind of be lucky and kind of avoid, or escape, or minimize, or explain away, or just be blessed somehow with some something that just allows us to tolerate and endure as much as we can. But the Buddha saw these conditions and undertook uh, the challenge of trying to find a, another way. And what he offers, based upon his realization and understanding, is a way of seeing the reality of our experiences, our very common universal experiences, seeing them and understanding them in a way that minimizes and eventually leads to the end of suffering. And if we can understand what the Buddha said, and practice as the Buddha practiced, and realize what the Buddha realized, then we too will see through 
see our life and life's experiences through Dharma eyes, through the eyes of the truth, through the understanding, the wisdom of seeing things as they really are, and in the process, <coughs> minimize and eventually bring suffering to an end. So what we're doing here is learning to practice and learning to practice with the understanding that the Buddha had realized. Now we haven't realized it for ourselves. We've just heard it from the Buddha or we are in the process of hearing it from the Buddha or hearing it from teachers of the Buddha's way. And to the extent that we can hear and apply and practice, we too may be able to realize and we will, we will all realize to some degree uh, the wisdom and the truth of what the, the Buddha was pointing to and in the process minimize our own suffering. So it's important to understand that um, <laughs> I'm remembering when I first started practicing with Upandita uh, it was a three month retreat at the meditation center in Massachusetts in 1984 and it was, I, I'd been practicing doing uh, meditation retreats for about eight years at that point and I was just frankly I was just doing repair work you know from my growing up in a dysfunctional family and I was just kind of getting a little bit stable and I really didn't understand what the Dharma was all about but one time I was in an interview with Sidar and he said well you know why are you doing this or what are, what are you doing? And I said, well, I, I just think that if I just keep sitting, that eventually one day, poof, uh, I'll be free of suffering. And he just burst out laughing. <laughs> like, uh, it doesn't happen that way. And that was my first rude awakening to the fact that I was going to have to do more than just, just sit. Because I didn't realize that then and what I want to speak about tonight is that when we practice, we want to practice with a skillful understanding of how to practice, why we're practicing, what the results of practice can be, what liberation looks like, feels like. Because if we don't know how to practice, why we're practicing, what we're practicing for, what liberation looks like, how will we know if we're on the right track, if we're on the right path? We won't. We'll be sitting here making a tremendous amount of effort going nowhere or even backwards. And I know you're making a lot of effort. It's not, it's not easy to be here and sit and walk and watch your mind and feel your body and not have your familiar distractions and activities to keep you entertained. And so we want to be doing what is useful. We want to be using our time wisely. And for that, we need to hear how the Buddha understood these experiences that we're also having. Sayadaw Utejaniya says that a yogi, like ourselves, has three jobs. The first is to hear and apply right view. That's 
to hear what right or skillful understanding is and then to apply it in our practice. The second is to generate or initiate or bring about awareness. And the third job is to sustain that awareness, or persevere in sustaining that awareness. So what is the first job of yogi? It is to hear and understand and apply right view. Now when I say right view, what I mean is how do we understand experience in a way that leads to the end of suffering, that minimizes or leads to the end of suffering? Because a lot of our way of understanding our experience leads to more suffering, more entanglement, more fear, more self-involvement, more uh, sense of entitlement, more sense of being victimized, because we refer everything to me. And this is natural. This is as, as natural as all of us are brought up in a culture and a family that believes in this way, and we get it. You know. And the Buddha said, that's not a very skillful way of understanding experience because it inevitably leads to suffering. There's another way to look at this experience and it leads to less suffering. So it's important to hear what the skillful way of understanding experience is. And when Sariputta, who was the second only to the Buddha in the development of wisdom at the time of the Buddha, when he was asked by some fellow monks, well, if right view is so important, what are the essential elements? What are the elements of right view? Or how do I establish right view within my own heart and mind? And he said, there are two elements for establishing right view. And the first is, you need to hear what the right view is from someone else. And the second is, having heard that, you then need to develop wise attention. You know, that first element is kind of a hard to accept. Because we're not stupid. We're not naive. We're pretty bright. And we are great problem solvers. Uh, so much of our education is all about solving problems and finding out why things are the way they are so that we don't get caught in more problems in the future. But the Buddha said, the, the ways of the mind are so tricky, so convoluted, or so subtle, that what we think is the right way of understanding experience is the wrong. And so we need to hear it from another. And even though we hear it, it may sound completely backwards. Or it might just sound not logical or not reasonable. But we don't have to believe it. And let me just first acknowledge that 
the practice we're doing here is not primarily a matter of belief. You don't really have to believe something in order to be free or to be liberated. You just need to hear it. And if you hear it, and you plant that seed in the, in the heart, in the mind, as you practice, as you go about just developing awareness, you'll begin to understand the wisdom of right view in relating to the different experiences you have. So I want to speak about right view of a number of topics tonight because there are many right views. Saito Pandita says that we live under multiple layers of delusion. Thanks. And the only antidote or the way of practice is to uncover them through multiple layers of understanding or insight and wisdom, correcting those wrong views or those deluded views. So, what is the Dharma? The Dharma is the way things are, the truth, uh, how it is for us, really. It also refers to the Buddhist teaching. And so when we, when we practice the Dharma, when we listen to the Dharma, and we practice the Dharma, and we realize the Dharma, we're actually coming into attunement with the way things are. And when we know the way things are, and we come into alignment with them, we stop struggling. We see, this is the way it is. And we stop struggling, and that in itself is a tremendous relief and a lessening of suffering. But the Dharma is, we could say, the study of nature. This whole process that we are, this whole body-mind process, is just an ongoing unfolding of the laws of nature. And when we practice the Dharma, we're studying, we're like scientists of this mind-body process. We're observing, we're hypothesizing, we're confirming or denying, refuting, and we're re-hypothesizing how it is here until we come to an understanding that is verified from our experience. All that occurs in the body and all that occurs in the mind is natural. It's a natural process. It's the result of natural process. There's no mistake. There's no error. There's nothing wrong with it. It's all unfolding due to the laws of nature. Now, the laws of nature, some we know, some we're familiar of in the West, we certainly understand the biological laws that we are heir to. We receive a genetic uh, profile from our parents, and we have the human genome sequence uh, within us that we are heir to. We, we don't escape from that. It is kind of the, the, the uh, outline of the unfolding of our human life. It's just a given, it's a fact. And so much of what happens to this body in the course of a lifetime is really uh, 
Well, in one sense, it's got nothing to do with you. It just it's the body living out its life due to or guided by the, the biological laws of nature. It gets sick, it gets old, it dies, it's got energy, it's got no energy, it's, it's everything that happens to it is it's due to the law, some of the biological laws of nature. There's also the physical laws of nature, like the law of gravity. It's got nothing to do with us, and yet we are heir to it, we have to live with it, the more skillfully we live with it, the less we get hurt. If we try to deny the laws of gravity and other physical laws, well, good luck, you know. And so the more, the more we understand, the more we observe and, and see for ourselves how the physical laws of nature impact this body and mind, the less we struggle, the less we kind of go against the grain, if you will, and the more, the, the less suffering. So these biological laws and the physical laws of nature are very well known to scientists and we in the West. But there are other laws of nature which are less well known, maybe less well studied, and less well agreed upon. And, and yet, in the East, or at the time of the Buddha, or through the kind of awareness training that the Buddha undertook and taught, these laws of nature can also be known. One of them is the laws governing the unfolding of the mind. How the mind unfolds moment to moment due to causes and conditions. And for those of you who have been practicing even a little bit, you can see that you can begin to observe closely how the mind unfolds in different situations, and you can see how you're provoked into anger, what happens when anger arises, or sadness, or joy. You can see how the mind is entangled in uh, desirable things, avoids undesirable things. It's just, it just starts to become apparent. If you just observe closely, carefully, repeatedly, you can see, oh, this is, this is how the mind works. This is how the mind unfolds. And not only how it unfolds due to the conditioning of our culture and family and society, but also how the mind unfolds conditioned by awareness practice. Once you start practicing awareness, you understand the mind more. When there's more understanding of the mind, the mind unfolds differently. And we can see that. There's a reason that people keep coming back to retreats year after year after year. It's because they see the mind, the heart, is changing in a way that is, well, for most of us, leading to less suffering. And maybe we can't articulate it, and maybe none of us are going to write a book about it, but we feel it, we know it, we experience it. And so we keep looking, we keep practicing, we keep moving the mind in that direction because we know how the mind changes through awareness practice. There's another law of the mind that is talked about and quite well known among Dharma practitioners, and that's the law of karma. The law of karma states that 
the intention with which you undertake thoughts, speech, and action has a powerful conditioning effect on the result of that action. And if the intention is rooted in an unskillful, unwholesome, or a harmful uh, state of mind like anger, confusion, uh, attachment, then the law of karma states that the result will be experienced as unpleasant. And if the action is undertaken with a wholesome, a skillful, a benevolent, kind, compassionate, generous, understanding state of mind, then the result of that action will be felt as pleasant. There's a lot of footnotes and there's a lot of details about the law of karma that are really hard to hard to verify. But in the broad strokes of the law of karma, we can see it doesn't it doesn't take you know too much to see that yeah it really does matter how you move about in the world and what the motivation is for your speaking and acting and how it just produces different results. So we can see the rough outlines and confirm for ourselves that there's something to the law of time. Maybe we don't believe it fully, maybe we don't believe everything we've heard about it, but what I've discovered for myself, even though I can't verify the law of karma to the degree that some authorities speak of it, I live my life as if it was true. And the longer I practice, the longer I've been involved in the Dharma, the longer I practice, the more refined my understanding and alignment with the law of karma falls into place. And there's another law, a natural law, of the truth, the way things are, and that is the Dharma, the law of the Dharma. The Buddha discovered the way things are and articulated them in his first teaching called the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering, the cause of suffering is attachment, there is the end of suffering, and the path to the end of that suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path. You don't have to believe it. But if you observe your life and the unfolding of your heart and mind carefully, you'll begin to confirm in your own way, and in subtle and gross ways, that there's something to it. There's something to the Four Noble Truths that it's just inevitable. It's, it's just the way things are. And that, that it, it has nothing to do with whether you believe it or not. It's if you observe it, you'll see it. This makes it a law independent of our will, our intention, our manipulation, but it's something that we can observe and learn to live with and therefore suffer less. So these laws of nature are guiding the unfolding of the body, the biological, physical, chemical laws, and the mind, the law of karma, the law of the dharma, the law of chitta or mind, the stream of consciousness and how it unfolds. And so much of what we experience is the naturally occurring result of causes and conditions which we don't control. 
we don't control how this body is going to unfold over this lifetime. We can't control, but we can train how the mind unfolds over this lifetime. I mean, if we could control the mind, we'd say, mind, be happy. Good luck. <laughs> it's, and, and we've tried that, haven't we? You know, it's like, nobody wants to be miserable. We, want, we all want to be happy, and yet we can't make it happen. But those of you who practice can see that if you make the effort and you train the mind, and you come to understanding, more understanding, the mind is happier. And so there is a confirmation process taking place here. But nevertheless, we can see, and it's helpful to understand frequently in practice, that this experience that we're having, this experience that we're knowing, that's being known, that's, that's, that's impacting our mind right now, is a natural result of the laws of nature. It's not your fault. That's what it means. It's not your fault. You're not a bad person that you're experiencing pain, that you're experiencing suffering of some sort or another. That's not... You know, if you could, if you could control it, you would. But it's due to causes and conditions that are beyond, your, beyond our immediate control. It's like, you know, if you had the power to toss a golf ball into the air for an infinite distance. You know, by the time it landed, you would have forgotten that you threw it in the air. And when it lands on your noggin and conks you and you kind of get upset, looking for somebody to blame, you forget where that came from. It's a result of causes and conditions. It's not God. It's not somebody else. It's not even you in the present moment. Lifetimes ago, you threw this ball in the air, and you happened to be there when it landed. Oh, okay. That's how it is now. Causes and conditions that have been in play for ever are unfolding in this very body and mind, even as we sit here. And the Buddha, when asked about this, he said, there's no beginning to this stream of consciousness that's just wandering on, you know, entangled and ensnared in craving and desire and delusion. There's no beginning to this. But here we are, now, aware, and through practice we can learn to understand it and disentangle from it. Dharma practice, all Dharma practices, whether it's taking the refuges as we do in the morning, whether it's practicing method in the afternoon as we'll start tomorrow, whether it's sharing the merit as we'll do each night, whether it's practicing mindfulness as we're doing here, listening to the Dharma, speaking the Dharma, there's all kinds of uh, wholesome Dharma practices. They all cultivate what are called the paramis, or the forces of purity in the heart, forces of purity in the mind. They're the forces of non-attachment, non-aversion, non-confusion. So whatever Dharma practices you want to take is good, it's useful, it's beneficial. Do all you can. Because in the process of developing and cultivating these wholesome states of mind, 
we are resting and temporarily putting aside and ultimately uprooting the unwholesome qualities of mind. Now, the interesting thing is, you're not, you don't own, and they're not yours, those unwholesome qualities of mind. They have been conditioned into the mind through delusion and ignorance and attachment and aversion and confusion. And so they're, they're pretty strong. You know, they're, 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 they really make themselves known in our practice through our anger, our irritation, our frustration, disappointment, fear, anxiety, striving, feeling victimized, entitled, all of those. And yet when we cultivate wholesome states of mind like kindness, effort, resolve, renunciation, generosity, loving-kindness, compassion, understanding, truthfulness, all of these suppress, arrest, and eventually uproot the unwholesome from the state, from the, from the mind. It's not personal. You know, the, the, the aversion is not yours. Just like wisdom is not yours. But it can be cultivated into mind. It can be trained. We can train the mind to, to have more of whichever we choose. So this is how we should understand the Dharma, the way things are and how the unfolding or what we experience in this body and mind is really, you know, it's not personal. We make it personal and that's how we suffer. We think it's all about me. But it's really all about the unfolding laws of nature and the causes and conditions giving rise to their effects. And when we understand that, then we can practice with a skillful attitude of mind that says, okay, I'm going to learn about these laws of nature and how they're unfolding within this mind-body process so, so that I, the me in here, can suffer less. And it takes just what we're doing here. Learning, observing, and learning about these processes and learning about these laws of nature that we are heir to. So the way to understand meditation practice, or the right view of meditation practices, are these. The first is that in every moment, in every moment of our life, something is being known. Every moment. The mind is never on holiday. It's never on recess. There's something being known in every moment. There's sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch sensations, or some mental activity, some thought, perception, belief, assumption that's going on. In every moment, the mind is just relentlessly, incessantly just churning away. Awareness and the practice that we're doing here is remembering to recognize that something is being known. Now, think for a minute. Was there a period of time today where you were lost in thought? <laughs> How did I know? Well, what does it mean to be lost in thought? It means, well, the mind is busy churning out some fantasy about the future, churning out some uh, rewriting of a 
painful historical past. And while it's happening, we don't know it. Right? We're lost in thought. We don't, we don't even know what's happening. The mind is busy, 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 kind of churning out these stories that we're not aware of. And sometimes when awareness arises in that stream of consciousness, and the fantasy stops, the being lost in thought comes to an end because there's a presence of mind, we can see, we can just take a glance back and see what the mind is doing. And we can recognize this whole story that was going on that we knew nothing about at the time it happened. Isn't that amazing? I mean, think about it. All the time that you're lost in thought, you're not aware that you're alive. You're not aware. I mean, yeah, yeah, the laws of nature are keeping the body going, keeping the mind going. Not there. Not there for it. Awareness is about waking up to that. Awareness is about waking up to the fact of what is going on in the mind. The body is going to go on until it runs out its, its genetic stuff, or whatever it is. The mind is going to go on at least that long, and maybe longer. That's what we're waking up to. We're not waking up to just, you know, I mean, we are waking up to the body, because when we wake up to the body, if you're feeling the body, and you know you're feeling the body, you're awake in the present moment, you're aware. And that's why so many meditation practices start with body awareness. Feeling the breath, feeling the sitting posture, feeling the movement of the body as you're walking. It's using the body to wake up to the present moment. But in the present moment is the mind. And that's what we're really trying to be aware of. It's waking up to what's going on. Remembering to be aware of the mind. What is being known. And in meditation practice, the field of awareness, or the field of our attention, is our own body and mind. We pay attention to the sensations in the body and the activity of the mind. We're not so interested in what's going on out there. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, things that are happening to us or things that are environmental. But even if you are aware of environmental experience, like today, hearing the sound of the rain on the roof, or when walking outside, getting wet, feeling the wetness of the rain. Really, those environmental experiences are really experiences of the mind. Because when you hear sounds, it's not really rain on the roof. You're, you're, you're observing the mind at the ear door. Without the ear, and without the mind, that rain could fall on the roof forever and you'd never know it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know it. It's the mind that's knowing all that. And so even as you attend to sounds, or sights, or in this case, rain, really, we're observing the mind. We're observing the mind through the eye door, through the ear door, through the door of the body sensations. 
And so any of these are really observing our own mind-body process. It's not so important to see outside, to hear outside, and to smell out what's outside, but to watch the mind in those processes inside. And this practice of uh, meditation practice, as I said, is not primarily a matter of belief. It's really a matter of experiencing, observing our experience. What you believe about it, yes, may determine whether you suffer or not, but you can't read a book about Dharma, get the belief about the way things are, and have it impact you in any meaningful way. It can inspire you, it can kind of inform you, but you really have to do the work of observing that this is the way it is within your own mind and body to get the transformative effect. Everyone, every one of us in the room, everyone that's ever lived, all animals that ever lived, all they ever experience is just six things. The Buddha, the, the Buddha gave the, the short story, the short sutra, the all. Just all that you ever experience is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thought processes. That's it. You think, if there's only six things you've got to be aware of, it should be pretty easy. Right? You just, just keep track. But not everyone is practicing awareness. Everyone experiences those six things, but not everyone is practicing awareness. And it takes these six things in order to practice awareness. Awareness isn't about anything but these six things. Being aware of, when hearing, know that you're hearing. When seeing, know that you're seeing. When tasting, know that you're tasting, and so on. When thinking, know that you're thinking. Now, what is it that we see? What is it that we hear? What is it that we know in our experience? What is it that we're actually aware of? Everything that can be known, we call an object. The object of our attention maybe is the breath. And so we observe the breath, or we observe the sounds, or we observe sensations in the body, or we observe the activity of the mind. Anything that we can observe is the object of our attention. Everything you've ever known has been the object of attention. Everything that you're aware of in practice is an object of the attention, the object of the mind. So, anything that can be known, physical sensations, they're very gross, they're very distinct, they're very locatable, really, in a time and place in the body. Pretty tangible, very gross, very... Mm, they're the predominant experience, initially, in practice. And then we get into <coughs> mental activity. Strong emotions, everybody knows what those are, kind of. I mean, they're strong emotions, but they can be pretty hard to identify. They don't really occur in a place. Sometimes they affect certain parts of the body, but they're very powerful. Emotions are really strong, more powerful than sensations in the body. 
it can really jerk us around. But more subtle than that is the mental activity of perception, of feeling feelings, not emotional feeling, but just feeling pleasant, unpleasant sensations, uh, thoughts, sometimes thoughts, beliefs, assumptions, perceptions. These are all activities of mind that can be known, that can be made the object of awareness. So when we start with the breath, or we start with the physical sensations in the body, that's just the doorway. It's just the entry to establishing the continuity of awareness. But as you try to attend to those obvious things, objects, inevitably the whole range of mental activity comes into view. We don't want to turn away from that. It's not wrong, it's not bad, it's not bad practice. We need to understand that. We need to open to them, feel them, recognize them, become, begin to become more familiar with the activity of the mind. And maybe the subtlest activity of mind is, is the activity of the mind. Just the mind that knows these things. Very difficult to recognize the knowing that is the expression of life. And it's so obvious. We live with it constantly. And yet, until somebody tells us that that's what's going on, we don't recognize it. And even after we hear about it, it's hard to remember it moment by moment. Meditation is the work of the mind. Yes, we have a body. Yes, it has a posture. Yes, we have to attend to all of its experiences. But really, meditation is the work of developing the mind. Again, when I was first practicing with Saito Upandita, I was reporting to him every day, two o'clock was my time. And there were just a few of us practicing that time, around 20 people were doing three months retreat with him. And it was really hard. And I was not very skillful. I was, I had a lot of energy, made a lot of effort, but I didn't have much wisdom in doing it. Nevertheless, I persevered. And when Sayadaw Bandita got it that my name was Steve Armstrong, he got a big kick out of that. He used to call me Steve Mindstrong. And every day I'd go in and he'd say, hmm. Are you mind strong today? <laughs> Is your mind strong today? I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> what are you talking about? If I asked you, was your mind strong today? What would you say? It's like, I don't know. Right? Is your mind strong? Is there awareness? Is the mind there? Is the mind present with your experience today? Was there a continuity of awareness, really, is what he was asking. Can you be with and recognize the fullness of what life offered you today? I didn't know that's what he meant. I thought, well, you know. But, you know, the mind gets strong because like muscles that you exercise at the club, at the gym, or, you know, your whatever classes you go to, the mind too has capacities like awareness, love, 
renunciation, resolve, determination, truthfulness. All, all of these are capacities of mind, attributes of the mind that can be cultivated or are cultivated through awareness practice. And the more we practice awareness, the stronger the mind becomes. The stronger these qualities and abilities or attributes of the mind become. And with their strengthening, there's more awareness, there's more understanding, there's more skillfulness in the mind. But it's a training. You know, we, we have that potential. The potential is in the mind, in all, in all minds. And yet, it's not easy to develop. You know, it takes this kind of effort that you've made today, persevering effort with clarity of direction and careful attention and uh, accurate perceptions and, and, and skillful understanding to develop these qualities of mind. But it's possible. You know, you can see that this is the training of the mind that, that we're undertaking here in order to strengthen these qualities of mind and eventually the wisdom quality is strengthened to the point of understanding how not to suffer. Now when we work with the mind in each moment, we're training the mind to observe. We just, we just want to learn how to observe what our experience is. What's the experience of the body, what the experience of the mind is. Not in order to get rid of that that's unpleasant, not in order to make something pleasant happen. We're not particularly looking for or trying to create spiritual goodies, you know, as Sadhu Pandita calls them, uh, like calmness, tranquility, joy, bliss, ecstasy, all those things. They come, but we're not trying to make them happen. If we've got that kind of agenda, then there's attachment in the mind. Or if we're trying to get rid of unpleasant experience, then there's aversion in the mind. So we just want to learn to observe our experience, learn what the present moment is offering. And just from observing itself, without any agenda, to explain, to figure out, to do anything with it. If we're just observing in order to know clearly, then understanding will grow. I like this, I like to, you know, uh, not this year, but I think it was maybe last year, when we were doing the retreat here, there were a family of raccoons that were well-fed at the compost pile. And the poor person who had to take the compost out from the, from the dining room was, was nearly attacked by this tribe of raccoons when they got close to the compost pile because they knew it was coming at lunch. If you, I mean, raccoons, they're, they're cute little buggers, aren't they? You know, they just kind of scurry around, they got these ring tails and whatever. If you want to know, if you wanted to know the nature of a raccoon, if you really wanted to understand how raccoons are in the world, you could look it up in Wikipedia. Or you could just sit by the compost pile and watch them. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to think about it. You just sit there and you just watch that when, when the fruit, when the compost comes out, this is what they do. And they do it for this long 
and they scurry around, they eat these things, they don't eat these things, they stand, they look, they, they fight with each other, they pick and choose, and, and if you watch them for the length of a retreat, you would really understand a lot about the nature of Rankin, right? You don't have to think about it, you just watch, and you know. The understanding will come, this is how they are. The same with your own mind. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to think about it. You just have to observe it. If you observe the mind carefully without any agenda to fix it, to explain it, to get rid of the things you don't like, to enhance the things you do like, to try to confirm what you've read in some book, none of that. Just observe. This is the way it is, moment by moment. You can't help but understand, grow in understanding. This is the way it is. It happens. That's why when you're, you know, if you do the practice that you've been doing today, but you do it consistently for many retreats over many years, when you hear someone speak the Dharma, it resonates. It's like, I know that. Even if you've never heard it before, or you've never put it into your own word, you put your own experience into words, when somebody tells you the way it is in their mind, you recognize that's the way it is in your mind too. The knowledge is there, the wisdom is there, even if you haven't articulated it, even if you haven't kind of described it to yourself or anyone else, just from observing carefully the way it is. That's why it's so important to not judge your experience in practice. You may think it's not happening, I'm not doing well, you know, I'm, I'm making a mistake, it's not working for me. That, that's just something else to be observed. Don't believe it. Don't believe what your mind's trying to tell you. Just listen, just observe to the way it is. And gradually the way it is will, will prevail. And all your beliefs and all your judgments of this is good, this is bad, this is whatever, will fall away. And you'll, you'll really understand this is the way it is. So we want to try to learn to observe experience, not from a, the place of evaluation, which we have learned through our cultural and family condition. Our family and, and culture has a, has a built-in bias towards pleasant experience, right? and a kind of an aversion to unpleasant experience. You know, it's universal. You know? But the way things are isn't like that. It's pleasant and unpleasant. And so our training is to learn how to observe pleasant and unpleasant the same as if they were the same, without that cultural bias, without that conditioned bias and preference. And when we can, we can begin to see, oh, this is the way it is, things just happen. There's nobody in the world that experiences only pleasant experience. And there's nobody in the world that experiences only unpleasant experiences. And yet, we still, even after all of these pleasant and unpleasant experiences, we want the pleasant and we don't want the unpleasant. Now, who's causing us to suffer? Mom and Dad. No. <laughs> We've learned that we get that kind of, we get this we get this conditioning feedback and, and just over and over and over again, ceaselessly in our society. Not our society, every society. Right? It's just endless. And so it's really hard to to recognize this conditioning in our practice. But that's our job. To recognize this is just conditioning to want to get rid of this painful experience. 
And when we can, recognize that, that conditioning and exercise some restraint, and just practice awareness of observing, or we can learn another way of being with unpleasant experience and another way of being with pleasant experience other than what we have been conditioned to believe and to react. This is the beginning of freedom. This is the beginning of liberation. We observe with the interest to know what is going on, to really understand. Not to explain, not to figure out, but just to eventually gather enough knowledge that we understand, oh, this is the way it is. And if we just have, hold in our mind the question of what is this? How is this happening? What's going on here? This kind of questioning. This kind of questioning leads to not necessarily answers to those questions, but it leads to understanding. And the Buddha said when questioned, why is it that some people are so wise? And why is it some people are so consistently making wrong choices? He said, those who ask questions end up being wise. If you ask questions, and I don't mean you got to ask questions of a teacher or the book. It's like, ask questions of yourself. What is going on here? What, is, what are the causes and conditions of this kind of experience? How did this suffering come to be? You know, those are not easy questions, but if you ask them with a mind that is open to grokking the answer, the answer will come. The wisdom that understands how the mind is working, how suffering happens, how the suffering comes to an end. That understanding, that wisdom will grow if that's the kind of questions you're asking. Nobody can give you those answers. You can only answer them yourself through practice. But it is possible. If we don't answer them, if we don't ask those questions, we won't find the answers. We can be calm. We can have all kinds of meditative experiences. We can get really blissed out. We can just feel all kinds of things, but we won't have understanding. So it's those who ask questions and practice in a way to observe the way things are. They will come to the answers. They will know. They'll have the wisdom of the way things are. This kind of observation with the interest to know what's going on, leads to understanding. And it is understanding that frees us from delusion. You know, I talked about those multiple layers of delusion that cause so much suffering, that are gradually eliminated by so many uh, insights, layers of insight, really, layers of understanding and insight. It's through understanding that we're going to free the heart, free the mind from suffering, free the mind from the confusions and the delusions that we are, well, conditioned to believe. That's why it's so important to just observe without any agenda. Not trying to figure it out, because if we try to figure something out, you know, then we can't we can't help but be conditioned by our 
that that figuring out process will be conditioned by our conditioning. So we have to un- undo that conditioning too, by just observing with kind of no agenda, other than to know and to, to see clearly. And in that seeing clearly, to observe with, and see clearly, understanding will come. The way things are will be seen. When we understand in this way, we see the world, we see our life through Dharma eyes. We begin to see things the way, and understand, really, to see, but understand things the way the Buddha understood them. These are impersonal things. These experiences are impersonal. There's natural unfolding going on here. And when we understand it that way, we stop struggling. We stop struggling with the experiences of the body. We stop struggling with the you know, fluctuations of the mind. We see this is the way it is. We come into alignment. We come into harmony with it. And this is the end of suffering. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.